Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, it is great to see you as you uh, turn uh, to Psalm chapter 44 here this morning. Just a few thoughts uh, about me so that you know uh, who, who I am, uh, um, the most important things about me. Uh, I was saved when I was 16 years old. Uh, those of you who know and like basketball, there was a player, his name is Hank Gathers, who died on the basketball court. And uh, God used a series of uh, significant events that really culminated with that tragic scene that night to actually lead me to Christ that very night. And um, I'm still amazed at the grace of God that he would save uh, me. He is uh, so kind. Um, three years later, God called me into ministry, which was a complete surprise to me because if you knew my story up until that time, I had a terrible, terrible speech impediment. I, uh, in fact, it was so significant that when the phone would ring, uh, I would sometimes pick it up and I couldn't say the word hello. And so I usually would just let it ring. Um, and so when God, uh, when I was 19 years old, I was in college and uh, God called me to go on a mission trip, or at least I felt that he did. And, um, uh, and so I signed up, uh, I was selected, I went to the first team meeting and a man named Dave Myers, who's the trip leader, he said, all the men here will preach at least one time while we're overseas. We were over there for six weeks. And, and so at that very moment, I knew that this was definitely not God's call on my life because that was something that would be impossible for me to do. But I thought it would be foolish to waste the time. I loved the word of God and there was uh, a uh, one copy in my lap uh, in that meeting. So I thought, well, I'll just keep reading where I was at that morning, uh, which was the life of Moses. And of course you get very uh, soon in chapter three and four to, um, to a man, a real man with a real speech impediment who's really confronted uh, by a real God who has a real mission for his life. And I was looking at the passage and I was in the midst of a meeting where I felt like God wanted me to go to help people to know about Christ, uh, my savior. And yet I was confronted with the inability that I had. I was convinced of that, uh, that how would this work? And looking down at the text, looking up, God said to Moses, who made your mouth? Now, was it not I, the Lord? Now go and speak and I will show you what to say and I help you say it. And so, uh, and so I said, yes, in, in faith, uh, honestly, I was, I was a young believer. I was three years old as a Christian. And so, uh, and so in my brash three-year-old way, I said, God, if this goes bad, this is on you, but I'm gonna go anyway. And, uh, and, and sure enough, God, um, the uh, first night that we landed was a Saturday night. I was keenly aware that the next morning was Sunday and that someone would probably be asked. We looked at the missionary and he looked at us, a team of 15 people, all kinds of people he could have chosen. And he looks right at me and he says, what's your name? And I was thankful that evening to say the word Brian. It came out smoothly. And he says, well, you're gonna preach in the morning. And, uh, and so I stayed up and prayed that night, uh, literally all night long, opened up the next morning with Acts 2 in hand. And for the first time that I can remember in my life, words started flowing 
in a way that, that I could only account to the grace of God. And so I am amazed, um, truly amazed, uh, even at this opportunity. I consider being with you today an undeserved privilege and honor and uh, one that I will surely remember far longer than you. So if you would, let's bow and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Psalm 44 and the sons of Korah that you inspired to write. We thank you for your kindness to us that leads us to repentance. And we confess to you that sometimes in life, you know our hearts, that when life doesn't make sense, Lord, that in the equation of life's disappointments and you being sovereign, sometimes it creates tremendous disappointment in our heart. And as folks who are in, engaged in a mission with you, seeking to honor you and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, sometimes we confess our disappointment tempts us to silence our mouth. And so I pray that you would use this passage to warm our heart or to lead us to repentance, to lead us to obedience. Would you give us belief in what you have written and courage to apply it to our life? We're grateful and we need your help. Would you speak through weakness, I pray this morning in Jesus' name, amen. So on that same trip, uh, I was in a truck. I was uh, out in the bush. There was four people in the truck with me. Our team of 15 were in three different vehicles and my truck broke down. It just stopped. It, and so uh, we got out and the two vehicles pulled up next to us. And so all 15 of us and our missionary, we stood around and we looked at him as if to say, so what are we gonna do? And, and his instruction to us was, to me at the time, very appealing as a three-year-old believer. He said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to circle around the truck, hold hands, and I want you to pray that God is gonna start this truck. Now you have to understand, my very first day, I saw God do a miracle. And so when he said, I've seen God do this before, I just really started thinking, it sort of hit a nerve that maybe this is how God operates in missionaries and pastors and people who are in ministries. You have a need and God just supernaturally pours out his grace and that need is immediately met. And I'll never forget what happened. We prayed, we said, amen. I turned the key and nothing happened. And suddenly my three-year-old faith was forced to fill the gap that the sound of an engine was supposed to fill. That silence ended when the missionary said, I guess you didn't have enough faith. As a three-year-old, honestly, I was confused, bewildered. How do you have enough faith? I just knew that I believed that I was gonna hear the engine, that faith in our heart wasn't like a beaker that you filled with water. And if it measured above a line, then all of a sudden the truck started and under a line, it wouldn't. I couldn't understand how God knew that we had a need. We were in a place seeking to serve him and he didn't help. So as we piled into the other trucks, to be quite honest with you, my disappointment was, was deep. And as you know, if you've ever been on a mission trip, oftentimes in evenings, there's time for testimony and singing. Singing and talking about God that night felt like attending a banquet for a friend who had let me down. I had very little desire to sing or talk about the greatness of God. Not because I didn't believe in the greatness of God, 
but because I didn't understand what he was doing. I didn't understand his place and I didn't understand his pace. And what I wanna show you in Psalm 44 is the answer to this question. And that is what do you do in ministry when you are disappointed with God's place or pace and Sunday is coming? What do you do on Saturday night when you are devastated in disappointment with God's pace in your life, what he is allowing, what he is not allowing in your life. And you need to stand up the very next day and to declare to people that God is good and that God used his power for good ends. What do you do? I believe Psalm 44 can help. This is what it says. It says it's of the sons of Kor. It's a mascal. A mascal is a song of instruction. And this is what he says. Oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever, Selah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, even demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Now, I cannot tell you why Psalm 44 was the fire in my belly when I had an entire Bible of text in order to read and speak about this morning, I can only tell you this. 
is that in 20 years of ministry, I can tell you that you will go through so many disappointments and many of those disappointments will actually be directed to God himself. You'll wonder why, you'll wonder how, and you'll wonder where he is at at those moments. It won't be a compromise of your faith in him, your love for him, your passion for him, but it will be real. As those who are in ministry and going into ministry, what do you do? I believe Psalm 44 is such a, such a window into the heart of humanity, of those who are seeking to walk with God in a broken world. What you find in this passage, if you notice, is there's five different sections. You see in your Bible that there's a break between verses 3 and 4, verses 8 and 9, verses 16 and 17, and verses 22 and 23. And these five sections, they depict, they give us a picture of a downward spiral towards disappointment with God himself. And I want to show you what each of these are. The first thing that takes place is we hear of God's faithfulness to others. You see this in verses one, two, and three. He's speaking and he says, we've heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days in the days of old, how you drove out nations, how you afflicted peoples, but you set them free, you planted them for you delighted in them. In each and every one of us, we've heard and seen stories of people who were single and they get engaged and they were without children and they get pregnant. And you've seen people where they're preaching sermons and lots of people, they're coming to faith in Christ and they're baptizing many and there's all kinds of fruit that you see. And when you see these things and when you hear these things in others, they generate within our heart, not only expectation, but they create categories of hope of how God may work and can work and perhaps will work in our lives. And then sometimes he doesn't. And so we hear of God's faithfulness to others and that gets us into the second section and that is that we remember God's faithfulness to us. This is verses four through eight. He says, but wait a minute, you are my king. Through you, we push down our foes. Verse seven, but you have saved us from our foes. You have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. In other words, not only have I heard of what you've done in other people, I've seen what you've done in my own life, but now I don't see you doing those things. And that leads to the third section, which is verses nine through 16. And that is that we feel betrayed. This is where we start thinking, I know what I've heard from others. I know what you've done in the past. I know what you've done in my own life in the past, but I don't see you doing it right now. And in a fallen heart, feelings of betrayal can turn our tongue into a sword. And so he begins to say, you have rejected us. He's directing that, look at the pronoun. It is you, you God, you have rejected us. You have forgotten us. You have made us turn back. You have disgraced us. You have made us like sheep for a slaughter. You have sold us and you have made us a byword. So we hear of God's faithfulness to others. We remember God's faithfulness in our own life. When we're going through difficulties, we can feel disappointment with God himself, even betrayed. And that leads us to the fourth section that you see in this verses 17 to 22, and that is that we feel self-righteous. 
Notice what he says in verse 17. All this has come upon me, though we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant. Now, is there a more mistaken verse in the entire Old Testament than verse 17? We have not forsaken you. We've been true. We have not been false to your covenant. In other words, though, what he's saying is this, is your word, you promised Moses. You promised the people that if we obey, you will turn our enemies from us. Our enemies are not turning. We look at our own life, we see a measure of faithfulness, and so you must be the one who's unfaithful. You see, there's a lot of us who we labor and we invest time and invest energy and invest tears and invest prayers and and we start to think of ourselves, recognizing ourselves to be a sinner and yet overall a pretty good guy who's trying to do a hard mission in a hard place. And God, I deserve your help. And so our hearing of God's faithfulness in others and our remembering God's faithfulness to us and our feelings of being betrayed by God's power and our feelings of self-righteousness lead to the last section, and that is that we cry out in desperation. He says, awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Literally, God, get out of bed. Throw some water on your face. Rise, come, redeem. Now, I want you to imagine just for a moment a televised political debate between two people. And these two people are man and God. And because God is such a gentleman, he defers to man to be able to open the debate first. And so man, so you can see there's two lecterns and there's a little moderator right here in the middle and there's cameras all over the place. And, and so we look at the man and man's opening argument is simply to read Psalm 44, the whole thing. Gets to the very end, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Even in verse 17, because God is so patient and kind, he doesn't interrupt like politicians today when he says, well, I'm just going to let you go ahead and just live there for a little bit. Go ahead. Go ahead and just assume that you've been faithful to the covenant. And God is patiently waiting. And suddenly it's time for God to speak. And at the very moment when it's time for God to speak, the cameras pan to the moderator. And the moderator looks and says, thank you so much for tuning in. And then turns us back to our regularly scheduled television programs. This is precisely what takes place in Psalm 44. You know, in most Psalms that are like this, you're waiting as you're reading it, aren't you? For that, for that nugget of hope, like Psalm 73, it's getting bad, 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 but then till I came into the sanctuary of God and I saw you, and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, whew, good. There's no relief in Psalm 44. What could that mean? What could it mean for God to inspire a passage of the Bible and allow it to end this way without him answering the bell? All scripture is God-breathed. And so God inspired the sons of Korah not only to feel these things, but to select these specific words that would include accusations about his very faithfulness. 
Why would God put something like this in the Bible? And so what I want to show you as my time comes to an end is really three things that are true about God or what he's going to do and what he does in this passage and in the Psalms that immediately surround it. And I want to give you three applications for your life and ministry. The first is this, is that God recognizes that disappointment is part of the relationship. I know this is an amazing thing and perhaps it's even a puzzling thing, but God's inspiration of Psalm 44 is an affirmation that he knows how we feel. Isaiah chapter 55, verse nine, God says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. This is not only an accurate statement, it's also a sympathetic statement. He knows that we're in a relationship with somebody that we can't understand his wisdom and his ways and the complexity of what he's all about, his sovereignty, his understanding. And God in his mercy, he, I believe he inspires words that even include human pain that's directed towards him, places them in the scripture as an affirmation to you and to me to say, I know, I know you don't understand everything that I'm doing. I know that you don't understand my pace. You don't understand my timing in your life. I, I know those things. But he, I think, knows this and he says this because he knows that disappointment is part of every relationship where at least one sinner is involved. And perhaps the most stunning example of this truth is that when Jesus hung on the cross after taking our sin, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, there's no doubt that Jesus was fulfilling Psalm 22, verse 1, but surely at the same moment, he was also experiencing for the very first time feelings of being separated from his father. So what do you do? And the application here is simply this for this point is let's cry out to God. I urge you, cry out to God in desperation. You see, friends, no matter how strong our disappointment may be, it is no license to accuse God of wrongdoing or to rebel against God in sin. I urge you to fight the impulse of our flesh and don't sin in order to punish God, in particular when you're disappointed with God. And you know very well that that is part of your history. It's part of mine. There are times when in sheer disappointment with God, people have gone out to say, I don't know, I don't understand, but this is what I'm going to do. In thinking they're punishing God who is holy, they only drive a deeper wedge into their own heart. You see, it is possible for us to cry out to God and to confess our confusion and our disappointment without sinning. You see, the beauty of Psalm 44 is that the sons of Korah, they're still crying out to God. They don't understand what is happening. They don't understand why God is not helping their armies. But their face is still Godward. And there are times on Saturday night when the most important thing you can do is to take your disappointment with what's happening in your day and your misunderstanding of how God's sovereignty and power is fitting into those disappointments and at least face Godward. There's been a few encounters in my life, one significant most of the time in each of our lives, they're just those mundane disappointments that just stack up. 
One of the more significant disappointments in my life was when our third son, Seth, was born. He was born with a tumor on his back that pierced through his back, through his spinal cavity, and encapsulated itself around the spinal cord. Two months old. Now, as a seminary graduate, a recent one, I knew things about the Bible. One of them was Psalm 139 says that God, you knit my son together in the womb. And at that very moment, the lack of understanding of God's perfection in creating combined with my affirmation that he says that he knit my son together that way in the womb created disappointment in my heart that I had to do something with. It was at that moment that I cried out to the Lord and I said, God, what I do know is that you did this. You doing it does not mean that you were wrong, but I affirm what you say in your word. I said that God gave us two healthy sons. It would be wrong to say that God did not give us an unhealthy son. Unfortunately for that story, so you're not wondering, is he did have surgery and many things in his life were threatening, including his life, in particular his ability to walk. And Seth, our third son, he just finished a soccer game, which was uh, really exciting to see God's faithfulness in his life. But more often than not, those disappointments are, are not the ones that really create within us a, a sense of being puzzled with the ways of God. It's individual decisions, it's deacons meetings, it's elders meetings, it's staff relationships, it's, 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 uh, it's things that stack up, the more mundane things in life. Let me tell you one of those, okay? We just hired a missions pastor at Providence and part of that, it was actually uh, a, a much longer process than I at one time thought that it would be. We started in the right way, seeking the Lord. We were praying, we were fasting, we were looking to God. Everything about the process is something that I would, I would urge you. I would encourage you to follow this kind of process. I can simply tell you that through the course of time, one individual rose to the top and what it felt like the process that endured for about three and a half months is looking up to God saying, God, is this right? Okay, keep walking. God, is this right? Keep walking. God, is this right? Keep walking all the way to the place where he comes back from the field, one of our IMB personnel. He's meeting with the elders and right after he meets with the elders, he says, God is not calling me to be here. And I look up to God and what it felt like is after all these times of looking up and God's going, Looking up and he's doing this. Look up the next time and he's like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> now I know that's not what was happening, but that's what it felt like. And so I remember one Saturday afternoon when he told me I'm walking through our neighborhood. I had to go on two different walks because I was so puzzled and frustrated with the ways of God. And I remember walking around saying, God, why would you do this to me? This is like three and a half wasted months. And you know those moments in life where God speaks to you and you really remember? I, I can specifically remember where I was at in the neighborhood when I felt like God said, I own you. I can waste all of your life if I deem it necessary. It's those moments when we read of God's tremendous power, 
We, we hear of his stories of what he's done in other people's life and all of a sudden we are laboring in the field and God says, this is the row and here's a hoe, now get to work. We know he has the power. We know he's sovereign. We know what his will is. And when we don't see those things, it's so hard. And what I would simply say is keep your face Godward. Keep crying out to him. I think the second thing that you see that God does is he reminds us of his loving rescue, his loving rescue. Notice what he says in verse 26. He says, rise up, come to our help and redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Now those words, steadfast love, hesed, covenant love, God's steadfast covenant love is the fuel that leads him to make a covenant with sinful people to rescue them and keep them in spite of their sin. And it is this love that the sons of Korah appeal. In other words, what they're saying at this moment, at the very end, they're saying, God, would you pay the purchase price for us? And instead of the life raft, we're, here we are, we're in the water, we're submerged, we feel like we're sinking. Instead of just a little dinghy that you'll throw to us or a little life raft, would you send the Coast Guard, the ultimate rescue ship of your Messiah to deliver us forever? This is, his, this is their final plea, their call. They're saying all of these little rescues, oh, they mean something to us, but what we desperately want at this point in time is the Messiah. Now, what I believe is that God led the compilers of the psalm to even strategically play Psalm 44 to help us navigate our way when we are disappointed. You see, the same authors also wrote Psalm 42, 43, 45. In fact, it keeps going, but I want to look at just a few of these. In Psalm 42 and 43, there's two, on, on, on three different times, Psalm chapter 42, verse 5, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You see the same sentence in chapter 42, verse 11. And then you see the same sentence again in chapter 43, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. In other words, a summary of Psalm 42 and 43 is this. The world is broken. My soul is shaken. But hope in God. Then you get to chapter 44. And chapter 44 says, the world is broken. Our soul is shaken, but the application is not hope in God. It's rise up, O God. And then you get to chapter 45. And in chapter 45, the sons of Korah, it's a love song, and they want to speak of a king. My heart overflows with the pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. Verse 2, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon our lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. All of a sudden you get to verse six of chapter 45 and he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So Psalm 42 and 43 says the world is broken. Our, our soul is shaken. Hope in God. Psalm 44 says the world is broken. Our soul is shaken. Rise up, O God. But Psalm 45 says the king will rise and the king will rule. So rest in God. 
And so as we ask God to rise up, we're told here not only to hope in his help, but also to rest in his king. And who is this king? According to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, which is a quote of chapter 45, verses 6 and 7, it's Jesus Christ himself who is the king whose throne is forever and ever and ever. Indeed, when you look at the complaints and the criticisms of God's faithfulness in Psalm chapter 44, is it not true that it was Jesus who was the servant who was rejected? It was Jesus who was disgraced. It was Jesus who was made like a sheep for slaughter. It was Jesus that was sold for a trifle. It was Jesus who had shame covering his faith, face. And this Jesus, he died on a cross for our sin and he was buried in a grave and he rose again and he did this in order to redeem us for the sake of his covenant steadfast love. So what do we do with this? I exhort you, fortify your hope and rest on those Saturday nights by rehearsing the gospel. If God would strategically orchestrate and sovereignly determine an infinite number of experiences in human history to accomplish a rescue mission that brings us eternal good, many of which were devastating to real people in real time. Funerals and widowhood and barrenness and all of these circumstances that God allowed real people to endure in order to bring about the salvation for many then we can trust him with our life. So when hope and rest are fleeting, and tomorrow morning you need to stand up and sing or preach or read about the goodness of God, I urge you to rehearse the history of the gospel to yourself. And what will happen when you do? Third thing and last is God restores our joy to speak of his love. You notice at the end of Psalm 44, the sons of Korah, they plead with God for help. But now at the end of Psalm 45, the same sons of Korah, they make it, as it says, their cause for God's name to be remembered in all the generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever. Listen real carefully. I'm almost done. Disappointment never respects the moment. It never says, oh, I am so sorry. I forgot tomorrow's Sunday morning. I'll come back later. Disappointment barges in unannounced at the worst times, threatening to silence our mouth. And my plea is do not wait for it to pass in order to sing or to share or to preach or to pray. It's a story of a grandfather who's talking to his grandson about how he's feeling. He knew that he was upset. His grandson said, I feel like there's two wolves within me fighting for my heart. One is really angry and one is really loving. He looks up to his grandpa and he says, Grandpa, which wolf will win? And his grandpa says, the wolf that you feed. Who is it that endures in ministry? It's real people with real disappointments, who take those disappointments to the cross. And so let's cause his name to be remembered. Proclaiming God's faithfulness when you do not feel like it is not fake, it's faith. It's saying you are worthy even when I don't understand. And I trust you and I trust you more than I trust myself. So friends, let's keep praying. Let's keep remembering 
and let's keep causing his name to be remembered. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness to us. And we pray, God, I pray for those in the room here who may be really disappointed with something that's happening in life and maybe that disappointment is splashed up in the direction of you. And I pray, God, for them, that you would encourage them, that you would comfort them, that you would give them perspective, that you would help them to see the risen king and how you and your faithfulness in order to orchestrate our rescue, our ultimate rescue, how you allow difficult times to come to real people just like difficult times have come to them. Would you give hope? Would you give perspective? And God, would you give us endurance for the task of making disciples in all nations? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.